Father God, we are keenly aware of our deep need for you. Actually, let me, let me fix that. We have pockets of awareness of our need for you. There are times in our lives where how dependent we are becomes extremely vivid because one of our favorite things, one of our cherished things, something that we hold tightly to, maybe things we shouldn't, Lord God, maybe our bank account gets a little skinny, maybe our health fades a tad, maybe our car breaks down, maybe our insurance lapses, Maybe we're in some remote region where our cell phone doesn't work and our roadside assistance won't reach and our spouse is out of town and we've got a flat. And we just, Lord God, you have all these different moments in our lives where you just remind us so keenly of how desperately we need you, but we've always needed you equally desperately at all times. It's just that you know how to peel back some of these layers of time and space and just show us that for a moment. But you're merciful because you don't make us just walk under this perpetual haze of, of grief or, or, or deep, deep need. You're so merciful and so kind that you allow us to discover our need for you through different moments in life. And the way you measure that out is so beautiful because in each one of those discoveries, we don't just become aware of the fact that we have a God in heaven who loves or that we have a need for you. But Lord God, we make this discovery that apart um, from your hand in every way, shape, or form, or, or as the psalmist would put it, it is in you we live and move and have our being. You cause that to just become such a clear reality. And Lord God, it's clear to us this morning also, and if it's not, make it all the more clear. As we prepare to preach, as we prepare to hear your preached word, we ask, oh God, that you would, you would enable me as a speaker to depend fully on you and to not depend on me. I ask, oh God, that for those that are hearers out there, the, the, the average intelligence in this room is, is incredibly high, oh Heavenly Father, but we pray, oh God, that it isn't just our intellect alone that's engaged, that we would hear you with our hearts, and that, Lord God, by way of your spirit, we aren't just looking to have our heads expanded, but we are looking to know something about you more intimately in relationship, Lord God. We must depend on you for that kind of interaction with today's message. And so we need you. If you don't show up, if you're not in our midst, oh God, this has just been, um, this has just been uh, a social gathering. And so come in among us, Lord God, to ensure that this is in no way a social gathering, but it is indeed a gathering of your people. Uh, this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So this message is going to be really quick today. As you can see, I'm already ready to go hit the links. So as soon as I get out of here, I've got my appointment already set. Just kidding. Uh, this will make all the more sense in, uh, in just a moment. Um, so as we closed out last year, you probably felt, hopefully throughout the year, or as long as you've been with us, you felt a lot of pressure, emphasis, highlight, double clicks, um, bold, underlined, and italics uh, placed on the, the idea of sharing the gospel. Did you not? Yeah, you felt that. And I pray that as you felt that deep and additional emphasis on the gospel, that you recognize that that was not a flavor of the month. We'll bring that into 2020 as well. But what I hope you also feel 
is that as you got out there to share the gospel, one of the first things you felt was a deep dependency on God. You recognize that without God, you couldn't really take full advantage of the opportunities to share the gospel. Maybe you didn't see them. Maybe you took certain relationships for granted. Or maybe there were relationships that you stepped into to share the gospel and you were kind of doing it out of your own familiarity with the scriptures and feeling good about how uh, confident and competent you are in sharing your faith because you've got one of those kinds of personalities and you immediately realize that, wow, the moment that person asks you a question you weren't ready for, that, ooh, God, I need you. Or maybe once you got over those fears and, and you had kind of worked through all the potential responses and you've been planting gospel seeds like crazy and you can't figure out how any person in that person's position wouldn't want to receive Jesus Christ based on this beautiful, long, enduring presentation that you've given them with all the proof points. And then you begin to realize that, man, while obedience is my business, the outcomes are God's business. I need him. And so I hope that in all of this emphasis on sharing the gospel, you've also kind of seen our own need, that we have collectively seen our own need to depend on God as children. And so this message about what it means to be dependent children should come as no surprise. And this message about prayer and this week of prayer that we'll be talking about will come as no surprise. That while we may spend a week or several months with direct focus and emphasis on the gospel, we may spend a week or so with a direct emphasis and focus on prayer, you need to know that these are not just important during those times that we talk about them. These are ongoing themes in the believer's life. And so I hope you can see now that if you're out there sharing the gospel, that your need for the God of the gospel has become all the more apparent. And so um, today, as you already heard, we're going to begin our series walking through uh, the identities. And uh, you know how much I love the old pop quiz, don't you? Why don't we just have one right now? Um, so the six identities, let's, let's shout them out. This is full audience participation here. Uh, they are generous stewards, responsible siblings, servant leaders, Dependent children? Okay, so if this was family feud, the, um, the right family is killing it, right? Anybody on the left family want to press the buzzer? Gospel-centered believers? Did you say generous stewards? We, we, got, we doubled down on generous stewards. Are we missing one? Which one is it? This is your time to steal from the right family. What was it? Intentional disciple makers, bah, bah, bah. boom, right family, runs, runaway train, or left family, depending on um, how you view your position. Uh, but nevertheless, thank you for that. So, so the identities undergird the life and the DNA of our church. Because as we talk about on a regular basis, we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. And the way that we'll do that is by making disciples who are growing in the gospel Trying to, get the, trying to get that group, man, <laughs> on mission. Well, as that is happening, certain things will happen in our lives. Just like I talked about earlier, if you're making disciples, it's going to drive you into God's word. You're going to become more gospel-centered. If you're making disciples, it's going to make you more dependent on the Lord. If you're making disciples, I mean, who, who are you making them after? After your own kind? After your own type? You're going to become more dependent children. You begin to walk in the identities, and you'll be seeing the Lord begin to cultivate the identities in your own life as you are living out this vision and mission that we've decided to take on together as a church family. And so 
That's why the identities uh, collectively are important for us. So um, today we're going to drill down a little bit closer and more, more focused on what it means to be dependent children. And I can tell you that as dependent children, there is, there's no discipline or, or behavior that is a greater marker in the life of a dependent child than that of prayer. And that's what we're going to be talking about today uh, when we take up our text in just a few moments. But <clears throat> before we get there, why this? So um, I was 27 years old the first time I ever um, touched one of these, 27. So it was almost 20 years ago. And uh, it was not by choice. Uh, in my, the course of my upbringing, um, this or golf was not one of the recreational options on the menu. Uh, there was nobody in my family who played golf. There was no golf course close to our home, so I didn't have a, a cool crew of friends who worked as caddies or ball boys or whatever you do when you go around to pick up balls at the golf course. Uh, didn't have any of that as part of my experience. I was a full-blown adult working in the business world, and one of my clients, a man by the name of Bill Burris, invited me to uh, play golf. And to play, not just play golf casually, he invited me to participate in a tournament, a full-on tournament. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, uh, him being my client, didn't want to displease, but I was pretty candid and open. I was like, hey, man, I don't know how to play the game. You know, I, I tried to use a part of my, that other part of my personality. It's like, hey, man, you know, you know, man, golf, man, I, I do gardening, you know, you know, you know, dig the ground up, but not golf. You know, they weren't taking it. The jokes didn't work. The casual denial, the stiff arm didn't work. Uh, and it was like, no, man, we want you to play golf with us. And so um, I did what any self-respecting person who doesn't know how to play the game does once I agreed. I went to the, um, to the pro shop, and I found the freshest golf gear I could. I mean, your boy was dripped. And I mean, I had everything you could possibly imagine. It was all Tiger Woods, you know, Woodsy stuff or whatever. I mean, I looked good. Because if I was going to look like a clown playing, I definitely wasn't going to look like one when I got in the parking lot or after the shot, you know what I mean? And so I um, went out and got my fresh gear or whatever, came out to the golf course and uh, had no clubs. It, it was obvious that I was a novice. I didn't have gloves. I didn't have clubs. I did, I think I bought a pair of shoes. The guys told me, don't worry about it, you can use our clubs. So I went out and... Um, uh, Bill and this other guy named uh, Randy, uh, we started playing together. And I was like, man, I was like, honestly, I don't know why you guys would want me here. He's like, don't worry about it, Rod. It's a scramble. Now, if you don't know what a scramble is, a scramble is where a group of golfers play together and you simply use the best shot, which means that the weakest guy on the team doesn't necessarily bring the team down. Unless, you know, especially if you got like a, you know, a stud on the team or whatever. So they were like, they don't worry about it. It's a scramble. And so we go out and we play, and it's a full-on 18 holes Right? And so if, you tr if you're playing slow, that could be like six hours. So this is like a full day of just sucking. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm, I'm out here on the course, and uh, out of the, I'd say out of the 18 holes, which is probably like the way we were playing, maybe 125 strokes, you know what I mean? I may have hit 10 shots that were good. And uh, in the process of doing all this, I'm actually developing a little bit of an appreciation for the game. You know, because the, the 10 shots that I did hit well, I mean, man, it felt beautiful. I mean, the ball just flew off the face of the club. I mean, I felt like I had finally gotten something right. And, uh, but it was a, overall, it was a rough day just watching myself underperform so grossly. But looking at it from the outside, it looked so easy because the other guys were doing it so effortlessly. Well, after that particular tournament, 
Bill and I's relationship continued to develop. We went from being clients to being friends, and he was a loud and proud, self-professed agnostic. He actually became a follower of Christ. Actually, he became the first person that I ever married, uh, and our relationship just evolved significantly. But over that time, something really significant happened. Bill approached me one day, and he says, man, are you interested in playing the game? And he was talking about golf. And I was like, yeah. I, I was like, I, I enjoyed the time we went to the tournament. Bill reaches in his trunk and as a gift, gives me a set of golf clubs. And he gives me his golf clubs. Now Bill was just as tall as I was and we were also both left-handed, if you haven't noticed that about the clubs already. Bill was left-handed. And I didn't know anything about the game, but Bill reached in his bag or reached in his trunk and what he gave me was a bag full of Callaways, if anybody knows that, that was complete with, I had three wedges, right? I had a gap of sand, right? And I had a, a lob wedge. He not only gave me a putter, full set of irons, as well as a big Bertha wedge, which was like, I mean, a big Bertha a driver, which was like the best driver that Callaway made at the time. And so when people saw this gift that I've been given, they were like, dude, do you know what you have in your hands? I mean, this is, this is probably, you know, over $1,000 worth of golf equipment that I have with the bag and the whole, and the whole shebang. And when I made that discovery, number one, I was already impacted by the fact that this was a great gift. But as I began to discover the value of what had been given to me, the quality of what had been given to me, I was compelled to learn to play the game. So I would go out to the driving range, and, uh, and I would practice literally three times a week. I'd hit, I'd hit a bucket of 150 balls um, per day, uh, minimum, at least three times a week. And I'd go out to the course, I mean, excuse me, I'd go out to the range, and I'm just, just hacking away, hacking away, hacking away, just getting after it. And what's happening is I'm hacking away, is I'm getting much better at hitting the ball, but I'm not really getting better at playing the game, if anybody can understand that. It's a completely different uh, thing to, to learn how to make contact and hit the ball regularly and hit it as hard as you can and to love the way it feels and to love the way it flies. It's completely different doing that on the range and loving what you're doing when you get a chance to repeat the same shot a hundred times over than actually going out and playing real time on the course. My wife, um, beautiful thing that she is, um, as our either anniversary gift or as a uh, birthday present, got me a coach. And um, so the coach has me to come out to the course, and I begin playing, and I'm ready to, you know, pick out my favorite club and just really get in there and show him I know what to do. And he was like, no, go get your putter. And I was like, the shortest one? The little one? I was like, everybody knows how to play putt-putt. I want to learn how to play golf. He says, no, go get your putter. And he begins taking me through these lessons where first he wants to change my feet and my hips and my, my hands and my stance. And, and then he only wants me to spend all this time like moving the club like this much. And I'm like, dude, this is not fun. Like I want to just rear this thing back behind my head, get into it and just like, wang, you know, dig up a little piece of ground, watch the tee flip in the air like this. And then I want to finish like this and do one of them numbers. You know what I mean? Just as the ball is hitting, that's what I want to do. I don't want to do this. And like literally for like lesson upon lesson, he would only allow me to swing the club like this much and like this much. And he went through all of this technical breakdown of telling me how the ball was made and what the divots are about and all the dimples in the ball and the, the angle of each club and the numbers and, and, and why the ball does this and which club to use when. All of this technical detail and I felt like he was sucking the fun out of the game for me with all of this technical jargon about how to swing the club, when all I wanted to do was just go out there, do my best, hit it hard, and hey, I realize it's a hit or miss game for me. 
But what I also realized in that moment was that if I really wanted to get good at golf, my game had to grow in multiple dimensions. Not just trying hard at the range and enjoying watching balls fly. That if I really wanted to grow in my golf game, there were multiple dimensions of the game that I needed to relearn and understand. And for a moment, yes, I may square up the ball, I may address it, and I may be thinking in my head about all these different technical pieces, but over time, as I become more practiced, I'm not going to be thinking about all those things. I'll just do them unconsciously because they'll become a part of my rhythm. But for us as believers, I believe, here's what happens. When I stand up here and tell you that on Monday night, I'm going to be teaching the theology of prayer, or if I tell you today that I'm going to be talking to you about some technical aspects of prayer, some of you may cringe because you say, Pastor Rod, you're getting ready to suck all the fun and spirit out of praying. Isn't it just about squinting and praying as hard as I can and as regularly as I can and just watching, you know, it might be hit or miss, but isn't it just kind of watching the ball fly and every once in a while I'll get one right? I mean, isn't that how we want to pray? Well, the answer is no. We should desire as much refinement in our prayer lives as possible. We should want to grow in all the dynamics of prayer and not just our favorite. You see, when I went out to the driving range, I had my favorite club. I had a particular club that I could hit with really well. And I just said, you know what? If I can learn how to hit a seven iron 200 yards, which I could, I was like, I'll just use that as my driver. But that's not the way you play the game. And while prayer is not a game, it is one of those spaces where if we're not seeking constant development in a variety of different dimensions, we won't experience our best relationship with God nor the best outcomes in our prayer life. And so I want to encourage and challenge us today to remember this, that dependent children have prayer lives that are growing in multiple dimensions. Dependent children have prayer lives that are growing in multiple dimensions. Don't let the chunkiness of that sentence or topic trip you up. And even if it does become somewhat theological, recognize that just like getting good lessons from a golf coach, there might be times when you don't feel like you're only taking like a half swing or we're, we're talking above your head. That's not what's going to happen here. All of this is deeply practical when appropriately incorporated. But dependent children should have prayer lives that are growing in multiple dimensions. When we look at Paul's life in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and following, we're going to see at least four of those dimensions in which the, the dependent children's or dependent child's prayer life should grow. If you look up on, join me and look it up on the screen, you'll see a little bit of a chart or graph there. That's uh, a, a graphic. And there's four dimensions that we're going to look at. Prayer being in the center, but my prayer life should be growing in both consistency, confidence, comprehensiveness, and, being, and, and a sense of community in its nature, right? So my prayer life should be growing in ways that make it more consistent. I should be becoming more confident, more comprehensive in how I pray, and more communal in how I pray. These are the four dimensions that we're going to look at that our prayer lives should be growing on an ongoing basis. And here's the deal. Not all of us are growing equally in all these areas. Some of these areas are more important to us than others based on how we came to know the Lord or the issue that's currently pressing upon our lives or who taught us how to pray or where we learned our theology of prayer. And so today we're just going to walk through these handful of verses and look at how these four dynamics, both consistency or consistency, confidence, comprehensiveness, and also the communal nature of prayer are areas that we should be growing in if we are dependent children. Again, so now, being dependent, this activity doesn't make you a dependent child, but if you're growing in dependency on the Lord, these are things that we should be pressing on regularly and seeing growth in our lives. So, that being the case, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to 
um, uh, Philippians, and let's take a look at verse 3, verses 3 through 5 in particular. It says this, I thank my God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer, always making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. One of the first things that we learn about Paul's prayer life is that it is marked by consistency. How do we know this? Well, if you look at the verse carefully, gaze at that verse with me on the screen, if it's there on the screen, our lives will be growing in these ways because we notice certain vocabulary. All, always, every, for you all, and from the first day until now. We notice that as Paul talks about prayer, he uses these broad, inclusive terms that speak to the duration for which he's been praying, that is, he's been praying for them from the first day until now. He speaks as though he says, I'm praying for you on every remembrance. I'm thankful for you at every remembrance. He said, if you cross my mind, I pray for you. As frequently as I remember you, I pray for you. Now, see, here's the deal. If you look at Paul's life and the circumstances that he's living under in the book of Philippians, that is, he's currently in prison and he's writing this wonderful thank you note back to them for their ongoing support of him during this time in his life. One of the things that their ongoing support and his own current condition reminds Paul of is his deep dependency on the Lord. Deep dependency reminds us of our need to pray consistently. As a matter of fact, I'll say it this way, that our prayer lives will only be as consistent as our realization that we are dependent. Think about it for a moment. Our prayer lives will only be as consistent as frequently as we are reminded that we are dependent. Think about your seasons of least consistent prayer. When does it occur? When you feel least dependent. When you don't have a current, full, forward-facing need that is screaming at you for attention. So when we don't feel dependent, we don't feel the need to pray with great consistency. But Paul's life circumstances and his relationship with those who are supporting him are constant reminders of just how dependent he is. In other words, none of the Philippian church's love, affection, sending cakes with, with, with you know, nail files or special letters from friends or anything can get him out of prison. You understand? None of their love and affection can get him out. He is totally dependent upon the Lord. And so the Lord uses unique circumstances to remind us of our great dependency on him, but not to to, to cramp our style and mess up our spirit and 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 ruin our day. It's all about raising our understanding of how dependent we are on him. And what one of the first behaviors you should call out of us is more consistency in my prayer life. Now, if you are a person who struggles with consistency, I want to just kind of make you aware of something. We are all consistent in certain ways about certain things. And what you'll note is that the areas where we are most consistent in the areas that we place the highest priority. How many people, without, do not raise your hand on any of these? Any of them. But how many of you have like a beauty regiment? Right? You come home from work and you have a certain thing that you follow to wash your face. Right? You, you completely wash your face, you get off all the makeup, you put on some special exfoliating cream, some other type of moisturizer, some other type of firmness cream, some other type of something so when you run your face don't jiggle, you know, whatever, you got all this other kind of stuff. Then you've got this other wrap that you put on and then you put some cucumbers or some kiwis on your eyes. How many of you got a regimen? 
And then not only do you have that for the end of the day, but then you got one for in the morning, right, before you put on all the makeup. How many of you have a fitness regimen? You're going to work out whether you're on vacation, you check beforehand to see if the hotel has your preferred elliptical, to see if they've got free weights or kettlebells. You, you, no matter what you do, if they don't have anything, you'll get outside and, and run in place and drop down and do burpees or some push-ups. Because what? Fitness is a priority. Uh, for some of you, uh, your children are a priority. You've completely, you know, maybe you don't have anything else in your life that is in order, but your child life is in order. You're going to wake up before the crack of dawn. You're going to make sandwiches. You're going to make bottles. You're going to prep clothes, lay them out on the bed. You're going to make sure everybody is lined up and ready to rock. You may not have anything else in your life. Everything else might be in total disarray. There might be laundry falling on the ceiling fan, just twirling around in your living room. But you're going to make sure that those kids can get off and go to school every day. And then you're going to make sure that someone meets them at the bus when they, when they come home. You've got You've got consistency in your life. I mean, I could go through a variety of these. I mean, some of you, maybe it's a fortnight appointment, right? I mean, perhaps you're just like, I mean, you're, you're, you're failing your classes or you don't have the grade that you so desire, but you will make sure that if the boys want to get on or the girls want to get on and play Fortnite, you're not going to miss that appointment. Maybe it's a sleepover. Maybe it's, I don't care what it is. Maybe it's a weekly gathering with the friends. No matter where it takes place, you guys have just committed that at a certain time every day or on a certain space, you are going to do the following. We all have consistency in our lives, whether we like it or not. And guess what those consistencies follow? They follow priorities. Every consistency in my life, every consistency in your life will follow your priorities. Whatever you place a high premium on naturally calls us to consistency. And so here is my challenge for you. If our consistency naturally follows our priority, then I would ask you to hinge or hook your prayer life to one of those priorities that has greatest consistency in your life. It might feel awkward, like getting your, your, your golf swing reconfigured on the front end, but I challenge you, before you do your face beauty regiment in the morning, to go before the Lord and make time for him in prayer. That before you get all the kids' stuff together, that you would spend some time in prayer. That before you decide to hit the gym, that you go before the Lord in prayer. Just, you put it anywhere. I'm not making any mandates or requirements. I'm just saying that if you have trouble being consistent in your prayer life, look for your priorities, and whoever is getting the greatest consistency, bring your prayer life alongside of that, and you'll experience a beautiful increase in your growth in dependency upon the Lord. When we look at Paul's words here in the passage, we see again, every, always, in every prayer of mine for you, I'm always making a prayer for you with joy because of our partnership from the first day until now. There's great emotion, there's great frequency, and there's all these things. But, where, but does Paul only say this to the Philippian church? No. Does he only show it? No. He also teaches it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Has anybody else ever hit verse 17 and just had to pump the brakes real hard? How do you pray without ceasing? Like, maybe that's for people in full-time ministry. Maybe that's for nuns and monks. Who can pray without ceasing? I'll tell you who can. People who have made prayer a priority. 
You see, praying without ceasing isn't about spending time in prayer 24 hours a day, but it's being open to it 24 hours a day. That there is no place where I can go, no circumstances that I can be in, nothing that can, that can fall upon my life, good, bad, happy, sad, exciting, and awesome. There's nothing that isn't an occasion to be in conversation with my God. That's how we pray without ceasing. So, the scriptures call us to it, therefore we should do it. Our consistency will always naturally follow our priorities. This is just a natural tell that we have in all of our characters. Let's look at verse 6 now. It says in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Some of your Bibles may also say, I am confident of this very thing. Well, now, one of the things that may rob us of our consistency in prayer is a lack of confidence that it actually works. So where does Paul get his confidence in prayer? Where does his confidence come from, right? Where does confidence come from? Um, and what's interesting is, uh, uh, you guys know Amon. Raise if you know Amon, my son. He's not in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Amon, my son. All right, you know. All right, if you don't, okay, well, I'll just tell you. He's, I have a son. Um, and his name is Amon. And... Uh, I would, there's a third line would have been great to have made that rhyme. But, uh, but anyway, he's 15. And so uh, we were, we were um, uh, he's learning how to drive. And so we were in the car one day, and he had been driving, I think it was last summer or something like that. We've been driving around our town uh, a, a good bit, and I figured, hey, it's time to go on the high on the interstate, I-20. And so um, he's a relatively confident guy. Uh, because, we, you know, he'd been driving quite a bit, uh, running various errands and, and doing things with me in the car. And so we get to the last traffic light leading up to just before you turn on the I-20, and I look over and I see him take his hands off the steering wheel and do this and wipe them on his pants. He was like, man, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why my, why my hands are sweating. He was, like, I'm, he was like, I'm not afraid to drive. And I was like, well, I was like, you lack confidence on the highway. And I was like, that's why. I was like, but what you need to know is that I am very familiar with the highway, with the interstate, and I would never take you on the interstate if I didn't think you were ready. You see, my confidence as a father, I extend to him because I'm fully aware of his abilities and I also know what it takes to drive on the highway. I want you to hear me carefully. This isn't about driving. This is about your prayer life. You see, a lot of times we lack confidence in prayer because we think doing it well is about us being able to say the right things. When in relationship with the Father, the confidence that we pray with doesn't come from our ability, it comes from his ability. You see, as far as he's concerned, I'm all-knowing when it comes to I-20. I'm all-wise. I'm fully experienced. And guess what? I'm all-in. It's my car. I pay the note. I pay the insurance. In other words, if you mess up this vehicle, I'm the one who's got to take it on the chin. I'm in the vehicle with you, but above all that, you're my son, and I don't want anything to happen to you. Why would I take you into an area that I felt like was going to do damage to you? Kind of take off the illustration hat for a moment and just think about the Word of God. Where does our confidence in prayer come from? Even if it's a place that we've never been before, it's a place where God has already been. Our confidence in prayer does not come from our capabilities in prayer. Our confidence should come from the one that we are praying to, the one we are in relationship with. You see, confidence comes 
from not only, it comes from consistently transitioning or translating history into the contemporary. Matthew put it this way, or Jesus put it this way. Pray like this in Matthew chapter uh, 6, verses 9 through 10. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The primal call of prayer is to participate as a translator from what's happening in eternity to what's happening in the contemporary world. Jesus tells us that's what prayer is. Jesus says, you're praying, your Father, your will be done as it is in heaven on earth. Let it be done down here. You see that? Your role, my role as a prayer, as a, as a person of prayer, is not that we are trying to push or negotiate with heaven to produce a certain outcome. We are facilitating heaven's outcome. Now think about the difference between a negotiator and a facilitator. A negotiator tries hard to push their own agenda, and when they see that the other side is not budging, the negotiations break down and you stop trying because you lose confidence. But a translator doesn't quit. A translator recognizes that if I'm not able to translate what heaven is saying to earth, then I need to learn how to speak that language. I need to learn what heaven is doing. You understand? So confidence in prayer comes from this, not just trying harder or being super familiar, but confidence in prayer comes from praying in concert with what the scriptures already teach. Notice how Paul says, I am confident of this very thing that the good work that the Lord has begun in you, he will complete it or bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Does that make sense to you? So the confidence that Paul prays with comes from him knowing and believing that what God said he will do, he will continue to do. What God promised to do, he will actually follow through on. You see, Prayer is God's invite to his children to, to translate the following. What he has already done, translate for the rest of the world and what that looks like into contemporary reality. Prayer is God's invite to the believer to, to take what he has promised to do and, and to show what that looks like in real time. To take what he has called the church to do and be and to follow through on that. But th think about these words of Jesus. The Bible says that when we came to know Christ, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's wrote the book. There's no encounter, there's no experience that we will have in walking with Christ that the author and the finisher has not already anticipated. It also tells us that when it comes to all of creation, that he is the alpha and the omega. So even when we were living outside of Christ, that there is nothing in creation that falls outside of the prayer view of the Christ. Then the Bible tells us that even when we come into this most unique relationship as his church, he says that he is the head of the body and the firstborn from the dead. In other words, there's nowhere that I can go and not in him have my life, not have my full life, my, my movement and my being. That there's no space, there's no encounter where I cannot go where the Lord is not fully wise, fully omnipotent, fully omniscient, fully aware, fully engaged, fully bought in having died for, having been raised for. In other words, there's no slice of the gospel that does not run through any space of the life where I'm living. And therefore, the call to pray is simply to plug in what God has said about this moment to show the world who our God is and how awesome he is and to let it be seen through your life. Like prayer is a huge gift 
that God gives us. And the purpose and the point of that gift, again, is to let people of the world see God's, see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And part of that great work is to see our lives, to see us pray, to watch us pray, to hear us pray, and to hear the outcomes of those prayers. So I would call you to this, not only be consistent in your prayer life, but to be also confident in your prayer life, because it is a major means of evangelism. Pray out loud, pray for real, pray specifically. Don't gear down your prayers and be afraid that, man, I can't say that because then I'll, I'll look crazy if I say that out loud and it doesn't come to pass. So praying isn't just this, this, this show or this orchestration of how liturgically, beautifully, and excellently we can use the right words to say things that make us sound pious. It really is about translating the will of God as it is in heaven to what is happening right now in the meantime in the earth. This is the invite in prayer. And we should pray with that confidence. So we should be consistent in our prayer lives. We should be confident in our prayer lives. Let me, let me ask you this. It, it, Paul's prayer is that, obviously, that the will of God would be made complete in their lives. How many people have ever driven, lived in, visited, or aware of a city whose traffic system is built on a grid? Yeah? Yes? Yeah, yeah, we got some grid folks, right? So Atlanta, if you've never lived or driven outside of Atlanta, Atlanta's not built on a grid, it's built on spaghetti, right? Here goes Spaghetti Junction, right? It's like a, a kaleidoscope or a ball of yarn that's been played with by a cat, right? It's just all this stuff is just kind of running around. But let me tell you something about a grid. You, if you live on a grid and somebody says, I want you to go to 19th and Halifax, and you're currently on First and Williams, you may have never in your life been to 19th and Halifax, but you know exactly how to get there because it's a grid. The Bible, if we would pray God's word, there are places in God that we have never been to, but if you know his word, you know exactly how to get there. Because you understand, not that you have, you have known the mind of the Lord that you might dictate to him or teach him, but you know how he moves. And so as we're going through our Bible reading plans, Yes, it's a great family creation. It's a great, obviously, to create community. But it's also great in increasing your familiarity with how God moves. What is the heart of God? How does he, how is he moved throughout history? Because when we pray with great confidence, we lean into the history of God, how historically faithful he has been in situations just like the one I'm in today, because I've seen that four or five times over in five or six different moments in the Bible. This is what brings us great confidence in prayer, right? Not that I'm an awesome, super-duper faith warrior, because where does the great prayer warrior and faith person get their faith from? Is there faith in the fact that they've got a 100% fill ratio on their, on, their, on their prayer life? Or is there faith from the fact that they have seen God move in ways that are consistent with how he always moves? So, so great faith in prayer, great confidence in prayer comes from consistently praying through God's word and becoming familiar with his ways. We should pray with great consistency. We should be growing also in confidence. And we do that by praying in concert with the Lord's word, in concert with the Lord's word. Verses 7 through 14, it's kind of a longer, broader view. If we can get it on the screen, I just want to highlight a couple of things here. Notice the different types of prayer that Paul engages in. And even if you can't see it there, I want you to note something. 
He talks about being thankful. He talks about praying for them. He talks about earnestly yearning for them and and all the things that he desires to have happen in their lives. One of the things that you'll notice in just this sweeping view of Paul's life is he is modeling exactly what he tells us to do in in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth and boldly proclaiming the ministry of the gospel. Notice how the, 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 the end of the sentence is always something that God's doing anyway. Notice that regardless of where he starts the conversation, hey, pray for me in this regard, but here's what God's doing anyway. God wants the gospel to get out. Pray for me that I would have the right words. He he, he says, pray with all types of prayer, perseverance, supplication. And so the third point is this, our prayer lives need need to not only be consistent and confident, but they also need to be comprehensive. We want to pray with all types of prayer. You heard me mention earlier that uh, when I went out to the driving range, I began to develop an affection for particular clubs because they seemed to work for me. But it left something out of my game to not be able to use all the clubs. I'll be honest with you, there have been times when I have analyzed my own prayer life, and I was like, wow, you are a selfish dude. You are a selfish dude. And how do I come to that analysis? Because if I were to, to transcribe the things that I'm praying for, they all the, all the arrows pointed to me. All the arrows pointed to my family. All the arrows pointed to my career. All the arrows, and if there was an arrow that pointed to you, it was because you played a role in something that was suitable to me. Right? And I was like, oh my goodness, look how selfish I am. All I do is I petition the Lord on my own behalf. But I'm not growing in thankfulness. I'm not growing in intercession. I'm not growing in confession. I'm not growing in in, in all the facets of prayer. I should be praying with all kinds of prayer, and I should not be the only object of my prayer. And so I just caution you, I beg you, and I urge you to be comprehensive in your prayer life. I get it. Maybe there's some of us that have found a safe space in praying prayers of great thanksgiving because we feel like if we ask for anything, it might not come to pass and we don't want to be disappointed. So we have just stuck in the gear of thanksgiving. There may be some of us who are stuck in the gear of supplication or even petitions, and we never give thanks. There may be others who are stuck in the gear of intercession because we feel disqualified to ask of anything on our own behalf. There may be others who are completely blind to your confession, or maybe you come from a Catholic background and all your prayer is confession because you live a life of perpetual guilt. And so you're just always constantly going before God talking about sin, but never extending beyond that. And so all of us have a particular penchant. All of us have a default setting. And the default setting is sometimes based on, again, how we were saved, how we're being sanctified, and also the backgrounds that we're coming from and the things that are pressing on our lives in the current moment. And so I would encourage you to pray with all prayer. Be people of thanksgiving, be people of confession, be people of supplication, perseverance, and intercession. Be people that are constantly, without ceasing, praying to God in all those ways. Because why? How I pray to God makes a statement of how I view God. How I pray to God makes a clear statement of how I view God. Inventory some of your prayers. 
Look at them. Listen to them. It, does it look like God is just a facilitator of your current New Year's resolution? Does it look like God has just become a parachute, an emergency brake, a security blanket, an escape hatch from your most recent sin? Is that all he is? And so prayer should be what? Consistent. And what else? Confident. And it should be what else? Comprehensive. But there's another variable that Paul gives us. And it's found in verses 7 and 8. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of my grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is uh, my prayer that, you love, that your love may abound more and more and in knowledge and in discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you may be pure and blameless in the, in the day of Christ and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I believe as another note that our prayer lives should also be communal. Here's a question that I have about this passage. Has anybody paid attention to the fact that Paul's language toward this particular church is so loving, so familiar, so kind. I mean, we'll get in there. There's some doctrine uh, down throughout the text later on, but man, the general tone is super duper relational. You would think he was their local pastor. You would think he was hanging out with them 365 days a week. You would think he sees them 52 times a year. He doesn't. He's away in prison. So how is it possible for a person who is a great distance from these people, and let's do this, with no FaceTime, no cell phone, no U.S. Postal Service, not a fast one, no FedEx, right? No telegraph, right? No smoke signals. In the absence of technology that keeps people quote-unquote close and have regular and frequent communication, how is it possible that this man has developed this kind of affection for these people from that great a distance? Because he prays for them every time he thinks about them, in every remembrance of them. I'm telling you, it's hard to hate folks that you're praying for when you're praying for them, not about them, not about how they ought to change and how they ought to get their act together and how they ought to come around. But when you pray for a person deeply, it is hard to not grow in affection for them. Not pray about the issue that you share with them, but when you pray for them. When prayer takes on that kind of intimate communal nature, notice that Paul's markers has been, he is just constantly talking about how he prays for them. Prayer ought to be communal, both done in communities, done for communities, but prayed also with the intent that we would have communion and community with God. This is how prayer ought to be prayed. He says, you are all in my heart. You are all partakers with me. I'm yearning for you all that you would, that you would experience the, uh, for, for with the affections of Christ. You see, 
earnest prayer increases communion with God and with the community of others. So if you're in a relationship struggle, you might be thinking you have all of these technical boxes you need to check. Oh, I need to go out and um, um, I need to do this more, do this more. What you need to do is pray for that person earnestly more. You want a great relationship with a terrible boss? Pray for them. Not about them and not at them. Not about the issue you want them to come into to agreement with you on. You, got a, you, have, you have a relationship more locally, a marital relationship. You've got a, a friendship. You've got a pastoral relationship. It's me, either me or Ryan, one of y'all that you don't like. Right? Pray for us. Areas where you feel like we're screwing up, pray for us. Pray for him. We're on the same page? But it's hard that when, you've been, when, you, when you move with that kind of compassion, that you, would, that you would leverage this incredible great gift of God on behalf of someone else, that you not grow in affection for them. That if you're really praying that the, the kind of communion, to, because when you pray God's will for another person, you are now participating in the two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and now love your fellow man as if he were yourself. And so prayer is this incredible intersection between earth and eternity where the will of God gets translated from there to here. And it's an incredible thing. And so we are called to pray how? With what? Consistency, confidence, comprehensiveness, as well as being more communal in our prayer lives. Now, the great question that we must ask is, man, where do I start? Well, here's where you start. Um, have you ever, um, have you ever been, maybe just riding along in the car with someone, maybe even sharing the same room with someone, and they're constantly talking, and you can hear them, but you're not listening. And typically, the hearing but not listening, maybe because of a lack of it's care for what they're saying, or perhaps even there's a, breakdown, a breakdown in the relationship, right? Prayer is an expression of our relationship with the Lord. It is a direct expression of communion that we have with him, and a kind of communion that is a gift given to us and only possible through relationship. So you might be saying, well, but doesn't God hear everybody? Yes. He hears everybody, but who does he listen to? The Bible tells us that if I regard sin in my heart, that the Lord does not hear my prayer. Relationship with Jesus Christ, placing faith in Christ, who God specifically sent to bridge the gap between him and us, to address the issue, not just the space gap, right? He heaven and earth. But to bridge the gap in relationship, we are on a completely different wavelength outside of Christ. We love things that God does not love. And when we place faith in Christ, we say, okay, Lord, now I'm going to love what you love. You love your son. I'm going to love him too. When we place faith in Christ, the relationship between us and God is mended, restored, redeemed in such a way that the Lord can listen to us even if we don't know what we're saying. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever held a child who maybe couldn't clearly articulate words, but because it was 
your child, you were fully committed to understanding what they were saying? You ever felt that? You ever felt how deeply it grieved you as a parent or as a babysitter? I don't know what you were in that child's life. How deeply it grieved you to see that child crying with every fiber of their being. You wanted to know exactly what they needed because they were your child. You ever felt that? Completely different from an adult who has made you mad and they're speaking very clearly, but you ain't got no interest in hearing what they're talking about. In Christ, and while God can interpret the cries of his people, in Christ, the relationship issue is over. We are given this incredible gift to participate in prayer, not just to cry out to him, but to also become a translator for him. The Lord wants to change the world through his people. And Jesus himself said, when we pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the fundamental request of the person praying. So this is a beautiful privilege that we are invited to in Christ. But it's only in Christ that this invite is made. Because the Lord places an incredibly high premium on his relationship with his son and for those who place faith in them. And so I don't know where you are in your prayer life. I don't know whether it's been hit or missed like me at the driving range. I don't know where you are, but, but, I, but I can say this. If you are in Christ, this is where you start. If you're outside of Christ and you're just kind of throwing darts at heaven, hoping that one of them stick, you'll continue to throw dot, darts. But, but if you'll come and know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've covered one of the first and most fundamental bases in your relationship with the Lord. You want a successful prayer life, if we can use that kind of terminology, get to know the Christ because there is a relationship gap that is on the table. You're already in Christ and you want to you wanna change the game in your prayer life? Then grow in these dynamics. Be more consistent. Where are the other priorities that you put before prayer or that have a more superior footing in your life than prayer? Bring your prayer life up and above and beyond those things. Be more comprehensive. Don't pray selfish prayers. Be more confident. Rather than just praying your will, bring the things that you want to talk about, but make sure that you understand how to, how to, how to attach them to what God is already doing in history, what he has done in the past and what he wants to do and what he has promised to do. Be more communal. Pray with and for others, not just at them and about them. This is how we grow in our prayer lives. The Lord wants to hear from his children, and guess what? He also wants to answer prayer. He wants to. Now hear this. If God wants to answer prayer, what's happening when prayer is not getting answered? If God wants to, if God wants to answer prayer, there's a couple things that we can think about. Number one, we, uh, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not asking or we're asking amidst, right? We're asking so that whatever we get, we might consume it upon our lust and it's not for God's glory. Or we're asking for things that are not in line with his will, the historic character and identity of his son. But God wants to answer prayer. If we know that God wants to answer prayer, that he wants to be glorified in this way. He wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants to be understood. And he would love to do it through answering prayer because when we press the right button, when we pray a prayer that God says, I will honor this request, it allows us to know him in a way that we would not have known him prior to the prayer. God wants to answer prayer. 
So let's pray earnestly. Let's pray consistently. Let's pray without ceasing. Let's pray unfailing. Let's pray with great confidence. If you can't pray on any other confidence than this, God wants to answer my prayer. But remember this too. The Lord's no is just as blessed as his yes. Because his no comes from the heart of a loving father who understands all potential and possible outcomes of the thing that you're asking about. And he knows the one that produces his greatest glory and your highest good because he loves you. And he won't violate those two. He loves you deeply, seeks your highest good, and he is committed to his glory. And so if you get a no, go away with great confidence that his love for you is intact like never before and his glory is still on the table. It's in full view. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you uh, this morning, hearts filled with thanksgiving for the incredible gift of prayer. We also come, Lord God, confessing that um, there are times in our lives where we prayed with great frustration because we didn't necessarily see you answering the way we thought you should. There are times when we've also prayed, Lord God, with uh, great fear and trepidation because we didn't know whether or not you would actually hear us. We pray with a timidity, no confidence. And so, Lord God, we bring that, that before you and ask that you would just meet us at the place of our need. We need you deeply. We need you desperately. Prayer is not our own creation. It's not our own orchestration. It's not some wonderful thing that we get to develop. It's not a, it's not a poetry contest, oh God, where you're only answering the prayers of the person who can put together the most flowery words. And we ask for your forgiveness if we've moved towards you in any of those ways. Our hearts cry before you, oh God, is that we would know you more deeply and beautifully through prayer. That you would grow us as dependent children that our lives would be marked by it. And that as our lives are marked by great dependency on you, that others would see this walk and this lifestyle of dependency and be compelled to come and know you. That our prayer lives would complement our gospel lives. Lord God, I pray for um, those in the room whose faith have been broken in many different regards. And ask, oh God, that this, through this message that your word has has planted a fresh seed that will begin to repair faith in you that has fallen. A sense of dependency in you, Lord God, that is broken. Pray, oh God, that um, for us here in 2020 as we launch out that Lord God, this would just be the signature of our lives. Lord God, and we ask this under the the authority, and we trust that it's consistent with the character of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.